Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Casey talks about Moses' wilderness seasons and why God leads us into those places. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Exodus 2, open up your Bibles. Today, uh, the sermon title is Moses. The man, the myth, and the murderer. That's right. We all thought we were going with legend. The man, the myth, and the murderer. We are going to be looking at um, a story that perhaps you've probably given very little attention to because it's only a few verses. We're going to look at Moses getting really angry and killing uh, an Egyptian oppressor. But before we do that, as you guys are going to Exodus chapter two, let me recap where we were last week so you really get an idea of the narrative. Last week, we talked about specifically five women who were in large part responsible for the exodus of Israel um, out of the land of Egypt. And the first two women that we looked at were two Hebrew midwives, and their names were Shifra and Pua. And what we did was we looked at all of these women and we saw qualities that uh, we wanted to both emulate. And then we looked at um, lessons from their life. And so for like Shifra and Pua, what we saw was Pharaoh called these two Hebrew midwives. They were likely the chief of all of the midwives, brought them to his court and said, hey, I need you uh, to essentially commit genocide. And I want you to kill every male child that's born to the Hebrew women. He did so out of fear, out of jealousy, and we saw that Shifra and Pua, they were both um, courageous and cunning. And if you remember that, we, we looked at they were cunning because they were smart enough to realize they couldn't just stand in their zeal in the moment and say, no, I won't do that. That's ungodly because they were smart enough to realize that Pharaoh would just grab somebody else to do his bidding. And so what they did is they sat there, they smiled and they said, you got it. They played the game. They were super cunning. And because of that, they uh, actually saved untold uh, amounts of children. They were courageous because they knew that if and when they were found out, they would eventually lose their life. And so that was Shifra, that was Pua. Um, and it says that they feared the Lord more than they feared Pharaoh. Again, emphasizing the same point that we've hit the last couple of weeks, that it's actually the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom, not the fear of man. We moved on past Shifra and Pua, and we looked uh, at uh, Jochebed, who was Moses' mother, Miriam, who was Moses' sister, and the unnamed daughter of Pharaoh. And we saw how important these three women were. If you remember the story, it was illegal to have a baby boy. Jochebed gives birth to what would be baby Moses. And with all of the, the care uh, and love and, and intellect that a mother can give, puts together this amazing plan of how she's going to save her son, who would be later named Moses. And so what she does is she creates this wicker basket. She puts tar and pitch to make it waterproof. And, and, and she takes Moses, puts him in the, the basket. And then what we see is it wasn't like the prince of Egypt where she just kind of floats him on down by the river and says, peace, all, may all be well with you. What she does do is she places him in the reeds so that the current doesn't take him at the right spot where Pharaoh's daughter was known to bathe. It was a very well thought out plan. And we took notice of her wisdom and of her faith. Because if you remember what we noticed about her was that you can have a rockin' plan and still be full of faith, right? She had a great plan. It was very well thought out, but it still required a massive measure of faith. And so we took note of that. Uh, and then what she was hoping to do was she was hoping that Pharaoh's daughter would come through and, and, and see the baby boy and, and hoped that uh, she would think the baby boy was really a gift from the sacred river of the Nile. That's what Moses means, to, to come out of the water, right? And so she was banking on the fact that, that uh, uh, the Pharaoh's daughter's kind of pagan ritualistic you know, uh, mindset would kick in and the, the very mindset of being a woman, that maybe she would have compassion on this sweet, what the Bible calls beautiful baby boy. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh's daughter sees baby Moses and it says that she's filled with compassion. And if you remember, we talked about um, the importance of having compassion and what God can do with compassion, whether it's through a non-believer or whether it's through a believer. God can do amazing things with just a little bit of compassion. And then the last woman that we looked at was Miriam, who was Moses' sister, who we saw she uh, was at the right place at the right time. She seized the opportunity of a lifetime 
And uh, when she saw that Pharaoh's daughter had no one to nurse uh, baby Moses, she has this brilliant idea, steps out in boldness and says, I have an idea. Let me go grab one of the Hebrew women and get them to nurse this child. And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, that sounds great. And so Miriam goes to get Moses' mother, Jochebed, and says, I have great news. I know that you didn't think you would ever see your son again, but you're going to get to see your son again. And Jochebed comes sprinting down the riverbank to where she's going to get to nurse her son for the last time, one last time. And what we notice is that the hand of God is always on the heart of faith, that faith always pleases the Lord. And what we see is that God does far more above and beyond what she could have ever hoped for because it wasn't just that she was going to get to nurse Moses one last time. What we see is Pharaoh's daughter actually says, I tell you what, why don't you take Moses back with you? You nurse him and you raise him until he's mature and then you give him back to me and I'll give you royal protection and I'll even pay you for it. And so the, the, the story ends last week with Jochebed raising Moses and then giving him back to Pharaoh's daughter. That was verse nine. We're gonna to start today in verse 10. And there's something you need to know between verse nine and 10. 40 years happen, okay? So there's a, there's a big time gap between verses nine and 10. And the, the story that we're gonna to read today is fascinating because it's not the only account of the story in the Bible. Okay, and one of the things that you'll learn as you read the scripture is that the, the New Testament is often, we call this, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And the New Testament often gives us insight into the Old Testament that we wouldn't have without it. And so it's really important for us as we're going through the Old Testament to go and see what the New Testament says. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna see the second account and the first account. The first account of this story is in Exodus chapter two. The second account is in Acts chapter seven. And Acts chapter seven is so helpful because where Exodus two kind of just lays out, this is what happens. Acts chapter seven explains the thinking behind what happened, explains Moses's motives, explains what was going on. And uh, it's very helpful for us. And so uh, as we do here, we love the Bible. So we're gonna read a heck of a lot of it. I'm going to read you uh, the passage out of Exodus and then I'm going to read you the passage out of Acts. We're gonna kind of lay them on top of each other almost like a little transparency. And I am going to uh, essentially look at specific verses found in this narrative. And we're just gonna talk about them. I got four verses that I just, I feel like we're supposed to talk about. Amen? All right, here we go. We've got it on our screens. Um, Exodus chapter two, verses 10 through 15. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and said, surely this matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian where he sat down by a well. Okay, how many of you guys have ever read that story before? Cool, that's awesome. I'm curious how many of you will have read Stephen's account in Acts chapter seven. If you'll go to the next slide, please. Acts chapter seven. This is Stephen, uh, the first deacon, uh, the first martyr, and he's uh, recounting the story. He says, uh, it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set uh, outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. That's how we know there's 40 years between verses nine and verse 10. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed 
that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them. Uh, uh, I'm so sorry, uh, I lost my try to tell. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together and he tried to reconcile them in peace saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring the neighbor pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now raise your hand if you're familiar with that account. Just curious. Cool, awesome. This is the most helpful account to me because this kind of unpacks what Moses was thinking. Before we begin, I want to uh, just remind you that the children of Israel are in captivity in this moment. But they knew how long they were supposed to be in captivity. And that's like, if you don't understand that, the story doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Do you guys remember in Genesis 15, we hit it last time, when God was giving uh, Abraham the promise that he would birth a nation. He says, hey, when that nation comes to pass, there's going to be 400 years of captivity and oppression, but then I will set them free and I'll take vengeance upon the oppressors. Do you remember that? So here's why this is important. Because Israel has every, um, they, they know that this is a temporary oppression. At least they should know. God warned them ahead of time. And most people who, were, who really cared and were God-fearing about the Lord would have known this promise to Abraham, would have known the entire prophecy about this captivity, and they should be keeping track. They have around about time for how long they've been in captivity. They know at this point, it's somewhere close to 400 years. So they've gotta be thinking the time is up. It was a very specific amount of time. And I'll give you a quick Bible hermeneutic. Numbers are specific for a reason. Numbers by nature are specific and very rarely do they not mean exactly what they mean. In the Bible, if you see a number, you need to assume it's literal unless the text says otherwise. Okay, that's how numbers work in the Bible. So they know 400 years we're going to be in captivity and then a deliverer is going to be raised up and we will come out of this land. And, the, and Genesis actually says that they're gonna come out of the land with all kinds of awesome possessions. And so they've got the timeline, which means Moses knows the timeline. Moses is very aware that the prophecy is getting ready to come to pass. He's very aware that he's living in that last leg of the 400 years uh, prophecy. And I'm convinced via the text in Acts chapter six that he is very aware that he's supposed to be the deliverer. So we're gonna look through this text. We'll talk about that in a moment. The first verse that I wanna look at, uh, I don't even have the verse number, but we're gonna read it. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And so the, the title of this point is when no one is looking. When no one is looking, that's what I'll talk about, okay? Here you have Moses. He, he is 40 years old. He has seen the oppression of his people for 40 years, and he sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew, and he can take it no longer. And it wells up in him the anger and the, uh, the, the injustice. And he says, I've got to get back at them. I've got to stop this. And so he does. But before he makes a move, he does something that's really, uh, really important. It says he looks this way and that. And when he saw that no one was around, he killed the Egyptian. How many of you have been in that exact same moment where you are getting ready to do the thing that you know you're not supposed to do when you want to so bad, whatever it is, you want to say the thing, you want to do the thing, you want to look at the thing, whatever it is, and you, can, you start to feel it in you. And then you go, I'm going to look this way, I'm going to look that way, and I'm going to see if I can get away with it. And I'm just going to tell you that that's actually when you lose the battle. When you start looking around and go, can I get away with this? You've already lost Okay, but here's Moses and he's doing the same thing that we and I do. Can, is anyone gonna see this? And upon seeing that the coast is clear, he goes in for the kill. Now, here's the thing. This is a super elementary point, but I really think it's worth noting. 
Just because man doesn't see does not mean God doesn't. God sees everything. And you and I may get into this place where we feel tempted and whatever it is, and we're gonna look this way and we're gonna look that way and we're gonna think for a moment that we're safe and that we can get away with it. And we forget that God actually sees all and knows all and is right there the whole time. Elementary, yes, God's always watching. You're never alone. He sees all of it. And it's worth paying attention to because it tells us something about those moments. When you're tempted, when I'm tempted to do or to say whatever it is, to feel the way that we feel, whatever it is, when we're getting ready to do that thing and we're in the same place with Moses and we're going, the coast is clear, that's actually unbelief. That is a momentary lapse of faith. And we think it's a sin problem, but it's not a sin problem. It's an unbelief problem. We have forgotten that God is actually right there with us, that he's locked in with us, that we are in his watchful gaze, and he is watching us do the thing that we shouldn't be doing. It's unbelief. And you think you're struggling with porn, or you think you're struggling with your language, and it's actually not that you're struggling with unbelief. You don't believe in the moment that God's actually who he says he is and that he's actually engaging upon you intently. Unbelief is the greatest enemy that we face, guys. It is not lust. It's unbelief. And so many of us, we operate in it daily and we don't even know. We, 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 we're tend, we tend to think that, that when we sin, it's just a, like I said, it's a lust problem. It's a pride problem. It's a self-control problem. And I'm just telling you guys, it's not. The real problem is maybe we don't believe. And the enemy is not trying to get you to do something wrong. He's actually trying to get you to forget someone, okay? And so in that moment, you have to understand that, listen, God sees all of your sin. He sees all of it. And that should bring a level of sobriety to us, absolutely. But it should actually, it should help us because here's the thing, it shouldn't bring condemnation and shame. That's not what I'm trying to do. Yeah, God sees all your sin. When you're looking this way and that, God's there. He's like, dude, what are you doing? But here's the thing, you can't fight what you're not aware of. And if you think it's a lust problem, you're gonna spend a whole lot of time working on your lust problem when what you ought to be doing is working on your faith problem. God sees everything and he knows everything. And if you want to do a super fun, really it's a super not fun exercise to find out how much, ex- how much faith you're lacking, we're going to do it together right now. You ready? Just prepare for the conviction. Close your eyes. I did it earlier. I almost died. Okay. Imagine. Close your eyes. I'm telling you, don't look around. Imagine for just a second that you knew, that you knew, that you knew that God was real and that everything in the Bible was coming true. There wasn't a faith thing. It was a, I know. It is a guarantee. Imagine that for just a moment. How would that change how you live your life? What are the differences between your life right now, how you're living, and how your life would look like if you knew that this was true? And if you're anything like me, the fact of the matter is that those two lives look very different. You can open your eyes. I say that not to bring shame, not to bring guilt or any kind of condemnation, but to bring awareness to a problem that the church often doesn't address in its unbelief. So many of us, our primary struggle, and we've never had language to voice it, is not pornography, it is not people, it is not your daddy issues, it is not your mental health issues, it actually is unbelief. And I'm not trying to mitigate those things because those things are real. 
But there is a core problem in the church. There's a core problem, I'll just say this, with me, where I forget that God is real. And, and, and sometimes you just go and you just go into the mode where you're going, I just hope that it's real. But here's the thing is the Bible says that faith is the evidence of things not seen and the substance of things hoped for. In other words, faith is knowing that it's real and operating as if it is. And every time you or I pull a Moses and we're tempted to do something that we shouldn't do, and we look this way and that, and we engage in whatever that is, that is literally us suspending all faith and saying, for the moment, I am choosing not to believe that God is real. I'm choosing not to believe that he's going to repay evil for, uh, or he can repay all of the evil in the world. I'm choosing not to believe that I'm gonna have to give an account for this. I'm choosing not to believe that this grieves the heart of God. I'm choosing not to believe that he is uh, uh, omniscient or omnipresent. It's literally, guys, a complete and total shift in the way that you look at your sin. It's a faith issue. You're never alone. And I, I want to just think about the implications of that for just a second. It says that when Moses saw that he was alone, that's when he struck. You and I will never be alone. And that should actually bring us great joy. What is man? Oh God, that you are mindful of him. God is always intentionally gazing upon your soul and your heart. You're never in his peripheral. You're always front and center for him. You're never alone. And here's what that means. Here's the implications of such a statement. That means that he sees all of your sin, past, present, and future. He sees all of your deeds, good, bad, and ugly. He's, it means he, he, he sees all of the moments where you're operating in unbelief and you don't even know it. And he sees all the moments when you're operating in belief and you know it. He sees your heart. He sees all those moments when, you, when, you're, when you're trapped in sin and your heart is going, I don't want this, I don't want this. And at the same time, he sees when you're living righteously, but your heart's going, I don't really want this. He sees everything. The theological term for this, he is omniscient, which means all-knowing, and omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. All-knowing and all places. And yet, here's why this is such good news. Here's why these two little words called omnipresence and omniscience are so important to the character of God, because you and I will never grasp the love of God if we don't understand that he sees everything and he is everywhere. Because in the midst of seeing all of our sin and all of our crappy heart posture and all of our, our, our posturing and our religious sins, he still loves us, still pursues us, still calls us his friend. And for those of us who are born again, for those of us who have faith that he is who he says he is, dude, he wipes the slate clean. But we only get that if we get that God is all-knowing and all places. We only get that if we really realize that God was there when we were on the computer. God was there when I was with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. God was there when I said the thing I shouldn't have said about my mom and dad. God was there when I got, when I got trashed at the party. And he still pursues, still loves. He sees all. He is everywhere and still loves all. How stunning is that? And so when we find ourselves in a place like Moses is, and we see that something's happening, whether it's, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whatever it is, but it's tempting for us to do something wrong, and we're going to look this way, we're going to look that way, we're going to see if we're alone, we must remember, we're never alone, and do not suspend your faith. God's there. And he always provides a way out, the Bible says. He always provides a means of escape. The other point I want to look at in this, in this same verse, it's kind of a different side of the coin, is, is that it says that Moses was alone. And, and while he's never alone, and we just covered that, right? God was right there with him the whole time, and he's still jacked up. The reality was on the earth, he was alone. 
And that was a big mistake. Here's the thing about Moses' life. We know little, but it's a, very, it's a very easy inference to make that he probably had nobody in his corner who was doing what Hebrews 10 says to do and spurring him on to good works and love. He probably had no godly community to hold him accountable, to call him higher, to challenge him to see when he was in moments of temptation and to pray for him and to, and to, and to hold him accountable and to be there for him. He probably had none of that. It was just Moses thinking, I'm the deliverer, it's all on me. And he had no friends. And I'm just gonna be honest with you, this is a shameless plug for you to be involved in Christian community. And I'm not saying for you to be involved in gatekeepers. I mean, you have to be deeply ingrained in the fellowship of the bride. If you're not, it's only a matter of time before you're killing the proverbial Egyptian. It's only a matter of time before you bail on Jesus. I was thinking about it today. Listen, uh, everybody who I know who was the fiery, zealous, godly, Jesus-loving believer who bailed on Jesus, they literally all have one thing in common. It's that they bailed on the church and then they bailed on Jesus. They got church hurt and they started distancing themselves with the bride and next thing you know, they're forsaking the bridegroom. You cannot forsake the bride and profess to love the bridegroom. It doesn't work like that. You can't forsake my wife and then profess to love me. We're one. And here's the thing, Moses was alone. He, had that, he didn't have that community. He was isolated. And in this moment, I read this, and you know what I think? Honestly, guys, Moses really could have just used a friend who was like, hey, Moses, don't be an idiot. You're thinking about doing this stupid thing. This is not going to go well for you. I love you. But there wasn't a friend in sight. And I'm just telling you right now, uh, I've failed more times than probably all of you combined in my Christian faith. The only thing that I feel like I've probably done decently well is the community piece. And I have a group of friends, a group of family that, have, that they, they were responsible for bringing me to the Lord. One of them's back there. Everybody look at Brett. See Brett? Go ahead, wave Brett. They preached the gospel to me. They discipled me. They loved me, right? And we've stayed together for, for 15 years and they know me and they know me really well. And here's, the, here's what happens. If I'm in a funk, if I'm in a place where I'm susceptible to do something stupid, they've got my back. They know me before I can even say something because they know me. And it keeps me grounded and it keeps me anchored. And there are moments where my theology can't keep me anchored. My theology is really good. I have great theology, I feel like, and I love my theology. But there are moments, let's be real, when the crap's hitting the fan, the theology's not good enough. You haven't had an encounter with the Lord in a year and, and the word seems dry. Here's the deal. In those moments, it's the bride that keeps you thriving. And Moses doesn't have that. He doesn't have a friend who's going to spur him on in good works and love and say, Moses, this is a really bad idea. I've had so many times where I've had my friends come to me and be like, hey, you're really off on this. Hey, you, you're thinking poorly about this. Hey, if you make this decision, it's going to go extraordinarily bad for you. And you need that, guys. I'm telling you, if you're going to survive as a Christian, you cannot live in isolation. You're never gonna be more vulnerable than when you're isolated. You look at Moses, he looks this way, he looks that way, he has no godly community, he has no friend to tell him this is a really stupid decision, don't kill the, don't kill the Egyptian, and he moves. It is the same thing that you and I do. He hides it. It says he hid him in the sand. The next thing I want to look at is... Uh, it's kind of a, I don't, I should have probably changed these points a little bit, made them clearer. Taking vengeance. Acts chapter seven says this. It, it's, uh, it, it talks about when, what was going through Moses' mind when he sees the Egyptian beating the Hebrew. It says, and when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. He defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Now, there are a couple of things that are worth noting here. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I'm going to read Bible that, Lord willing, is going to uh, give all of us some good, steady conviction. 
Number one, as Christians, we don't take vengeance. We just don't do it. God, he's the giver of vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God is the only one who can make uh, all of the wrong things right again. And, and you taking vengeance upon somebody through whatever means, it's probably not killing somebody, although Lord willing, or Lord, uh, Lord forbid, God forbid, thank you, that's what I'm trying to say. There might be somebody in here, but don't kill anybody, okay? It was probably not gonna look like that. But when you're getting ready to say the thing that you shouldn't say, when you're getting ready to, to vent, when you're getting ready to slander somebody, when you're getting ready to get so freaking mad, and you're gonna, you're gonna retaliate, you don't do that because you're a Christian. You say, well, wait a second, why don't I do that? Well, Jesus didn't do that. Let me read this to you. This is Romans chapter 12, um, verses 14 through 21. And uh, dear God, this is like the hardest thing to do as a Christian. Bless those who persecute you. We got like seven more verses. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Key on this, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. I wanna just take, never pay back evil for evil for anyone. It doesn't say never pay back evil for evil for anyone unless, unless you were really, really hurt. Unless you were really, really done dirty. Unless you were abused when you shouldn't have been. It literally gives no room for us ever to pay back evil for evil under any circumstances. I'll read it again. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. He says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Possible so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Keying on, as far as it depends on you. You may not be at peace with all men, but you should try to be. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. That's crazy. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Think about the person who has done you the absolute most wrong the person who has sinned against you to the highest degree possible. We've all got them. And some of us in this room have been sinned against in a very dramatic and traumatic way. This verse still applies. When your enemy is hungry, you feed him. When they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. And it speaks to the next point, that not only do we not take vengeance, but when we're done wrong, we bless and we rejoice. And that's a really hard thing to do. We don't ignore it. We don't ignore the pain. We don't ignore the sin. We may need to address it. That's very real. But our ultimate attitude and our ultimate posture is one of blessing and rejoicing. Look at Jesus's words in Matthew chapter five. Blessed are those of you who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in my name, uh, for in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And uh, one of our, our primary goals here at Gatekeepers, uh, you'll hear us talk about the end of the age a lot. We actually have no idea if we're living in the end of the age. Theologically, we are. We, there's some signs that make us think, eh, we might be, but the, that thing may be like a thousand years away, Okay. But what the Bible is super clear is we're supposed to live as if the end of the age is in our lifetime. We're supposed to live with that level of sobriety, that level of alertness, and we're supposed to live with that level um, of godliness, okay? And so what we're trying to do here at Gatekeepers is actually prepare you for a day, an hour of intense trial that's going to hit the earth where you will be persecuted for Jesus's name. And I'm just gonna tell you, if you can't forgive your dad, 
There's no way on earth you're gonna forgive the guy who's persecuting you because of your faith, but really persecuting you. There is no way you're gonna forgive the person who's holding you at gunpoint or throwing you in jail just because you believe in traditional marriage if you can't forgive your friend who wronged you at church. And so we start now by blessing our enemies, by blessing those who do us wrong, and we rejoice knowing that we're, Paul says this, he goes, he goes, I am actually filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now that's a baffling statement. You got Paul who's being persecuted for all kinds of religious or by all kinds of religious zealots. They're trying to kill him. And he goes, oh, I rejoice. This is great because here's the deal. Christ didn't suffer enough. I'm just kind of topping off the glass of suffering, filling up with that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Because I rejoice to suffer because Jesus suffered. It's a really intense message. Matthew chapter five, it's really intense. But where Moses took vengeance, we don't. Where Moses sees that somebody's being hurt and oppressed and kills the guy, we don't do that. Now, on the other side of the coin, that does not mean we just remain silent and take it all the time. There's a time for stopping something, right? Moses was very well in his rights to stop the guy from beating the Hebrew, but he was not in his rights to kill the guy. Does that make sense? So if you see oppression, if you see somebody being treated unjustly, right? You get to step in. Absolutely, you get to step in. But you don't step in for vengeance. You step in for righteousness. You step in for care. And you don't kill the guy. You don't beat the guy up. Does that make sense? You guys picking up, it's, it, there's, it's, it's kind of, it, it seems to be confusing, but it, honestly, it seems very clear in scripture. We don't take vengeance. And so when somebody specifically wrongs you or harms you at church, Lord knows, can I just tell you it's gonna happen a lot? I'm gonna wrong you. It's not intentional. You're gonna wrong each other. It's probably not intentional. We have got to learn to bless, to rejoice, and, and to some degree to even get over it. Cool? Okay. Number three, I want to talk about the allure of impatience. It says that, and he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So this is a really fascinating verse, and here's why. Because up until, if we just read Exodus, we have no idea what's going on in Moses' head. We think Moses sees somebody getting hurt. He's angry. He's tired of it. Goes out, kills the guy, hides him, and that's really all that's going on. But what we find in Acts chapter 7 is Moses had a much deeper thought process. Moses thought the time of deliverance was at hand and that he was the guy to do it. Moses miscounted the years, and he got impatient. And it says that, that, that after he kills the, the Hebrew, it says that he assumed that all, or after he kills the Egyptian, he assumed all the Hebrews would understand that their day of deliverance had come. In other words, you can, you can imagine the scene's a little different now. He's just killed the Egyptian and he looks over at his brethren and he's like, today's the day, let's go. And he's expecting a giant rally cry. Yes, it's deliverance. Yes, the 400 years are up. Yes, the prophecy is happening. We're doing it. We're getting out of here. And they don't do that. They look at him and they say, what, who are you? Who made you prince and judge over us? You're gonna kill us like you did the Egyptian? Now this is where a lot of us live. Not in the killing of the Egyptian part, but right here. Just like Moses, we get the dream, we get the destiny, we get the destination. We get a clear picture of what God has in store for us and we rush it. We get impatient with it. In a moment of, of, of desperation and, 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 and deep emotional intensity, we jump the gun and it costs us. And I'll just tell you this, God probably has, has shown you at least glimpses of what your future is gonna look like. He's really good to do that. You may not have it figured out. You may have it completely and totally figured out. The Lord may give you some grand dream and you're like, yes, this is it. But here's the thing that strikes me so interesting about this is Moses is 40 when this has happened. He's 40, he's old, respectively. 
right? But here's the thing. So many of us, guys, if we're honest, we are trained somehow, some way to think that God uses us the most when we're young, when we're zealous, when we have the time. And we even pitch it to you guys. Now's the time to go to the unreached nations because you don't have a family and you've got the time and, and then you've got zeal. Go, you've got the strength of your youth. And we kind of trick you into thinking that your destiny is going to happen in your 20s and your 30s. And then maybe when you get in your 40s, you're starting to fizzle out. But certainly by the time you get to your 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, you're pretty much done with the kingdom if you pass the baton. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. And here, what we see is Moses isn't 20. He's not 18. He's not 30. Moses is 40 years old. He's been waiting on the destiny that is so clear to him. He's going to be the deliverer. His entire life's been leading up to this moment. And at 40, he's actually still not ready. He jumps the gun after 40 years of waiting. Now, that's actually kind of commendable because most of us jump the gun at like six months or a year, right? Maybe the Lord gives you a vision for missions and you're like, sweet, it's time to go to the mission field. Let's sell all my positions, my possessions, and let's go. And you just jump the gun and the Lord's like, whoa, dude, slow down. It was supposed to be like 10 years from now. All right, now there's a cost associated with that. You're hanging out on the mission field, you're not ready. Moses though, he at least lasts 40 years, which I think is super commendable. But what I love is that Moses, when he's actually called to go deliver the people, he's 80. At this moment, Moses is 40 and he gets called at 80. Do you know what that means? That means the first 80 years of Moses' life was worthless for the kingdom of God. Let that sink in. He wasn't, he wasn't going around preaching the gospel. He wasn't going around seeing people get saved. He wasn't going around performing any miracles. Moses was just living the, the second Thessalonians life of I'm working with my hands and I'm keeping myself quiet and I'm just doing my life, being faithful in the little, in the obscure for 80 years. And as an old man, God shows up to him in a bush and says, now it's time, let's go. And I just say that, it's not meant to be like judgy or convicting. What it's actually meant to do is kind of alleviate some of the pressure that you and I sometimes feel being young. Now's the time, young one, go, go to the nations. God has big dreams in store for you. And, and, and people mean that so well and people will prophesy amazing stories over you. They're like, man, God has big things for you, Micaiah. You're gonna do such grand things, it's gonna be amazing. And what happens is it actually creates this level of pressure on you, like I gotta perform. And if I'm not seeing amazing things, then I'm in disobedience and I'm the one doing something wrong. Maybe God does have grand things for you. Maybe it's when you're 80. Can you just leave room for that? You don't have to be something special at 20. You don't have to be something amazing at 30. You don't have to be walking in your God-given calling at 20 or 30. You don't. And it can get really hard because you're looking around at all of your friends and it looks like they're moving towards their destiny and it looks like they're, they're killing it and God's opening up all these amazing doors and it looks awesome and you start to compare yourself and go, well, Lord, that's not happening for me. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to give you a, a futuristic read. This is, this is not discernment. This is not prophecy. This is what history tells me. All of the people in this room who are like, I know exactly what God's calling me to do and I'm moving towards it. No offense, you're full of it. Chances are you don't know. And I say that humbly as somebody who, who did the same thing. Okay, you, you probably don't know. You probably have no clue. It's probably going to change five years from now. It's probably going to change 10 years from now. And that's actually okay. And so there are those of you in the room that you compare yourself over and over again to all the people who seem like they're rocking it and moving towards their destiny. They're, for, they're, they're looking around, they're seeing Moses stepping forth, taking his destiny. Come on, it's deliverance. And you feel like something's wrong with you. I'm just gonna tell you, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. Give yourself time to get to the destination and enjoy the ride. Because here's the deal, the destination, ultimately, it's not doing something, it's being something. And it's being with Jesus. And the whole point of the journey and the destination is intimacy with the Lord. That's the whole point anyway. So here you have Moses. He's assuming that the time has come. My destiny's upon me. Now is the moment. And he goes to liberate his people. 
They don't follow. And something amazing happens. It says that when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, that's probably not one of your memory verses. It's probably not one of those verses that are like, that's a big deal. But it is. If you know anything about Midian, the land that he goes to, you'll know that it's a desert. It's like the most harsh environment in their area. It's unforgiving, rocky terrain. Nothing grows there. Nobody lives there. The weirdos live there. The ones who barely survive, they live there. That's why Moses goes there, so that Pharaoh can't find him. And so Moses sees that his moment has come, realizes he didn't, the moment wasn't there. He read it wrong. Now he's fleeing to Midian where he's gonna stay for 40 years and he's gonna have children and he's gonna get married and he's gonna have a little family and he's just gonna shepherd for 40 years. And we don't really know what's going on probably because he doesn't do a whole lot of good. He just does. He's just existing, living. And here's the thing, man, about Midian. I told you it's a desert. And um, this is the last point that I wanna make, but I, I think it's really important. Um, there's a theme that we're going to see, and you see it right here with Moses. This is the beginning, and we're going to see it all throughout the Old Testament as we, I don't know if we're going to read the Old Testament together, but you'll see it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Anyone who's ever been used by God to great effect has been led to a literal desert. If you look at, if you look in the word, almost everyone who's been used to dynamite effect in the kingdom of God, God leads sovereignly, whether it's through the vehicle of their sin and disobedience or whether it's through the vehicle of their obedience. He will lead them and finagle their life to where they end up in a literal desert or your Bible might call it a wilderness. And we see that's where Moses ends up. The story ends with Moses spending the next 40 years in a desert in total obscurity. And here's why this is so, so important for you and for me, because God rest assured, if he's going to use you mightily, he's got to break you first. And one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to lead you into the proverbial wilderness, the proverbial desert, where things are dry, where things are barren, where it feels like God has forgotten you, where it feels like people have forgotten you, and you're dealing with all of your mess and all of your insecurities and all of the things that you didn't realize were inside of you are coming out and you're having to deal with them. And God's actually there with you going, yeah, this is what I want. Here's the point. Chuck Swindoll says this. The desert is God's school of ministry. And so many of you guys feel called to do ministry and you feel called to, to either to the nations or to, to the campus, or you feel called to do some kind of mission, missional work. And, and, and I'm just gonna tell you right now, the internship that you're wanting to do, the seminary that you're wanting to go to, that's not the way that God equips you to be the person that you're supposed to be. Those things are helpful. Seminars and conferences and internships. We do an internship. I'm gonna plug the internship next week. Those things are great, but here's the deal. All they typically do is give you knowledge and knowledge puffs up. What they don't do is the one thing that the desert does without a doubt, which is instill godly character in you. You see, you go to internships, you go to your seminaries, you go to your leadership conferences, you go to all the things that you think you're supposed to do in order to be in ministry, that's not what qualifies you. Those things are gonna give you good revelation. They're gonna give you good knowledge. But I'm just gonna tell you, knowledge rarely leads to dramatic change. Usually, it's these hard seasons, these dry seasons where God is working in your suffering and in your pain. And he's in there and he's doing surgery and he's causing you to have godly character so that you can bear the weight of where you're going. And for Moses, here's why this is so important. Because what we see, according to Acts chapter seven, is a dramatic picture of Moses that most people don't talk about. It says that Moses, what is it? It says that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power and words and in deeds. That he was educated in all the ways of the Egyptians and was known for being a powerful speaker and a powerful worker. 
But that is not the Moses that we meet at the burning bush, is it? The Moses that we think of is the old frail guy who says, I, I can't do it. I, you know, I've always had a stutter. Who here has ever, said, ever heard that, right? Oh no, I've never been good to speak. Well, according to Acts chapter seven, you were known for how awesome you were. In other words, Moses was deeply equipped in all of the right ways to be a leader according to the world. He went to the greatest schools, the greatest seminars, the greatest conferences, the greatest internships. He had all of the knowledge, all of the, the skill. And God's like, that's actually not gonna serve you really well. What I need from you is I need to bring you to the desert. I need to break you of some of the stuff that you're operating in. I need to deal with some of the pride. I need to instill godly character in you. And I need to get you used to the desert because by the way, you're gonna go back to Egypt but then you're gonna spend another 40 years in the desert leading a group of people through that desert. Moses would spend 80 of his 120 years of life in the desert. And here's why I'm saying that. I'm gonna end, end on a positive note because there are some of you, you're in that season and, and it doesn't feel good. And I've been in that season. You feel like, it's not like, it's, it's not like a faith crisis. You just feel kind of distant from the Lord and a lot of the stuff that you thought you dealt with is, is starting to come up and you're, you're frustrated and you're, and, and, and you're disheartened and you, you feel like maybe, it's, maybe you're like Moses. Maybe it was your sin that led you to that place. But here's the deal. Uh, Jesus didn't sin and it says the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. David refused to sin against Saul and that's how David ends up in the wilderness. Elijah does exactly what God tells him to do and that ends up in a wilderness. And so it may be your sin that brought you there, absolutely, but it's not about your sin, it's about your potential. And God's actually trying to help you. He's trying to, to instill the character that is needed in order to bear the responsibility that he's gonna have for you. And so if you can look at it with a right perspective and understand that your desert season probably isn't a punishment for your sins because if you're a born-again Christian, there is no more punishment for you. All of your punishment was taken. It's not a punishment thing, it's a potential thing. And so if you're in that season, you've got to learn to have right eyes and go, okay, I'm taking this to mean that you actually do believe in me and that you're trying to do something in me so that I can be great in the kingdom one day and I can do amazing things for your honor and for your glory. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna humble myself and I'm gonna submit to the process. I'm gonna deal with it. And here's the deal, it's probably not gonna be 40 years for you but for Moses, it was. The desert is God's school of ministry. And if anybody here wants to do amazing things for the kingdom, you just need to know that God's gonna take you to a hard place, a hard season, and he's not leaving you. He's never gonna forsake you, but you just need to embrace it. And I will promise you this, you won't live there. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.